Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, my name is Molly McDonough, and I'm a communications and media professional eager to explore more effective ways to meet the legal needs of underserved populations. I enjoy speaking with leaders and innovators in this space, and today it is my distinct privilege to welcome three guests with experience with an issue especially critical to access to justice and the effective delivery of legal services. You would think that plain language, converting legalese into common word uses, would be a no-brainer. It's had wide support for decades in courts and legislation, but it turns out that plain language is more complex to implement for a number of reasons. We hear why today from Cheryl Stevens, who in 1993 helped found the Plain Language Association International, Claudia Johnson, a lecturer at University of Pennsylvania's Cary Law School and program manager at Law Help Interactive, and Maria Mindlin, a readability and plain language specialist with the Language Translation Agency, Transcend. Welcome. So grateful to have all of you with us today. I want to start today with some questions about the history of plain language advocacy. And I want to start with hearing from Cheryl, who has a long history in this space, first as a practitioner, and then kind of really diving into creating more accessible documents. So if you could talk a little bit about what got you interested in this space and where you've seen this movement, at least from the early 90s. Yeah, well... In 1985, in the UK, they launched Clarity International, which was focused on plain legal language and whose initial support came from Judge Denning, Lord Denning. And in Canada, I'd say around, well, in 1987, 1978-1987, there were two. One was a federal report, one a provincial report, calling for plain language in order to increase access to justice. So efforts started then, and it really, it always depends on the availability of funding, sponsors, uh, you know, advocates, and a leader. So those things waver. But I'd say since 1978, things have been moving forward here. I got drawn into it because I worked in a law firm working up uh precedent system, uh, taking all the, you know, previously existing precedents and they were put online and then I had to come up with a rationalize and update. So updating, first of all, meant getting agreement on a, a style guide, which took a year, and then beginning to work on the forms. And at that time, our continuing legal education society sponsored a three-year project, which, so they had the funding. And uh, I joined that as research director. So we spent our time reading everything we could find from all over the world about plain legal language. So ever since then, things have been moving forward. As you mentioned, in 1993, a friend and I launched the uh, Plain Language Association International. Uh, Somewhat later, uh, one of the people who'd been involved in all our activities was Anita Cheek, who was with the uh, U.S. federal government, and she began the work there on their their monthly meeting group and their websites. And then when she left, when she retired from the government, she formed the Plain Language Center in Maryland. So 
uh, Center for Plain Language is what they call it. And so then you had three major organizations, the uh, Plain Language Association International, the Center for Plain Language, and the Clarity International. And they began to work on doing some rationalizing and formed an umbrella group called International Plain Language Federation, which for the last, I'd say, 10 years has been moving things forward. So that's how I got started. That's where the movement got some initiative. And it's been pretty consistent ever since then. So for me, it's more than 30 years. Things have been moving forward a bit at a time. And over 30 years, a bit at a time, slower than I would have thought. And I know we're going to get into that a little bit. And maybe, Maria, you could pick up on this a little bit, too. One of the things that struck me as I was prepping for this was, you know, really how much support there is for plain language, but pretty much almost no funding. So where we've seen some progress, there have been very distinct funding initiatives to make this happen. So I'm wondering if, Maria, if you want to address that. Well, Transcend came into plain language through a different door. Um, We worked with California when they did the first court plain language forums in the United States. And uh, of course, plain language was the principal motivation. But one of the things that was a big incentive for many courts is that when you move to plain language, you reduce the word count, usually 25 to 30-40%. So for states that are mandated to do translations, this can be an economic incentive. So in those cases, plain language is not necessarily self-funding, but at least uh, it, in some way it pays for your translation burden. So in those states, it was an easier push to get through to plain language. And in other areas, I think it's just been a matter of education and um, contacts and pressure and <laughs> learning more about it and uh, uh, user feedback and We've seen a a good amount of progress in the 20 years that we've been doing plain language, but of course, we'd like to see more. I want to get into some of that progress, but I'm hoping that Claudia can jump in and talk about uh, specifically why plain language matters in this space, especially with access to justice. Thank you, Molly. When we think about what justice is, right, justice really requires a trust and a conversation, right? And while in the United States we have very particular ideas of of justice as we relate to institutions and decision makers, a big part of justice requires us to communicate and to be able to communicate what we need to those that have the power to give us relief. And that those that have the power to give a relief are not necessarily just courts. They're not just necessarily just tribunals. There could be our employer. It could be, you know, our housing provider, etc. And people need to be able to communicate in their own voice to those decision makers. But at the same time, if the system, the justice system, and I'm referring to this very broad, um, not just in places of of law and court, but anywhere where injustice or justice can happen, people need to be able to understand the instructions by which to communicate with those forums. And if those instructions, if those forums, if that guidance is put in the words of professionals that have spent 
years honing in, you know, their language and vocabulary, and they use that language to communicate with the, with the end person, with the person in need, who may come from anywhere in the world, who may have any level of education, who may have any level of um, reading ability, those instructions are going to fail. And people will not be able to get through a process that is all about being heard, it's all about being empowered, because we are disempowering them with the forms and the instructions to get through the process where they ask for the relief, where they tell their story. So I think that it's very important that plain language be factor in any time we're communicating with the public at large. It has to be baked in. It's not an unfunded mandate. Any organization in the business of doing any sort of public service should be communicating in plain language how you access the services, you know, hours of operation, when you're closed, what you need to bring, how to go from A to C through a process, particularly if it's about justice. It also depends on the, you know, what's popular at a particular time. So we've approached plain language in Canada in terms of literacy and the needs of an immigrant uh, working force to have adequate language, uh, to have things translated into clear language for people who are new to English. We've approached it from crime prevention. And when you think about the courts and who's affected by the language in the courts, many people just think, well, it's the criminals and what do we care? But in fact, it's the victims, it's the witnesses, it's the family members who come to court, it's the police. I've worked with police on this issue. Everyone appreciates the need for plain language for many people involved in the court system. And so uh, literacy, crime prevention, access to justice, there's lots of different motives that come forward uh, at any given time and, and make funding available. And that has been helpful. I was struck by when we had our conversation Friday and even through some email exchanges, I keep thinking, how hard is this? Uh, you know, how hard is it to come up with, you know, just to start making things easier to understand, stop using Latin terms, stop using archaic language structures, and start translating wherever possible. But then, you know, you all brought up amazing points about actually how difficult it is to come up with a style guide and agree on what is the correct or the most appropriate terminology. Cheryl, if you want to start with that, I would I would love to kind of get your take. Yeah, well, years ago, people who delivered training in plain language used to insist on a three-day training program. And our federal government developed a three-day training program that they offered across the country to their staff. But you ask a lawyer to spend three days learning to write plainly, they're going to, you know, very few will agree to that. <laughs> so for myself, I had to bring it down to whatever amount of time they had, I'd speak to them. But it does take a, an understanding of what actually clears it up, you know, and it's not, plain language is not easy. It's easy to say, but more difficult to do. So you need the money to hire somebody on contract or you law firms used to have editors on staff who even they needed to be trained in plain language. And so all these things, they take time and money and it's not. For example, in Australia, there were a couple of major national law firms that decided for reasons of real estate law to do plain language projects. And they spent $3 million in three years to do it. You know, so it takes a long time because not only do you have to win the lawyers over to your substitute words, but you have to uh, do the labor 
And then you have to try it out. You have to test it on the potential readers and see, did that really work? Was all right. One of the things I've gotten most excited about in the last three years is the neuroscience that's now available to tell us how language is processed in our brain. So it makes the training a little easier to emphasize certain aspects. Maria, do you do in your work, do you do a lot of on the ground user testing? We do a lot of user testing, and I think this really ties into your question about how hard really is it. It's really hard. <laughs> I think that in any area, change is hard. It's it's hard to learn how to do things differently. And then, of course, as you know, all of the speakers have said, you know, we we get married to certain ways of expressing ourselves and believing those are the best and perhaps the only ways, the only proper ways of doing things. So it takes an, uh, you know, a certain amount of education, permission, culture. And I think that the organizations that Cheryl referred to at the outset have done a really good job at providing resources for how do you change the culture? What type of training do you need? What type of resources do you need to be able to accomplish these goals? So there are certain steps that I think nowadays, now after 30 years of plain language, it's not that difficult to go and figure out what are the steps our organization would need to do to convert to a plain language friendly organization. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to something I wanted to ask a little later, but really what are you seeing in that space develop in terms of, because to get to that point where there's greater adoption, it's best when we see some good models. And I understand that we do have some some good models in Maryland and uh, Washington State. So Maria, if you could start and then Claudia, I'd like to kind of hear your take on some uh, models that are in place that that you'd like to see replicated or scaled. Well, we were involved with the Washington State Plain Language Initiative, and I would say uh, some of the salient things that uh, made their program very effective was, number one, they had a dedicated staff person who led the initiative and continues to lead the initiative many years afterwards. They put a lot of emphasis on training all of the court all of the court attorneys and staff and everyone in the plain language, they had a court-wide three-day training to kick off the effort. They did intensive training for uh, the key stakeholders, and they you know, really set very specific goals. We're going to do all of the family law forms within this certain amount of time, and we're going to user test them and understand and incorporate the user's feedback. And they were very uh, generous about sharing their experience of what they learned, what users preferred, what the challenges were in a way that I think has become helpful for other states to understand. As an example of that, I would say that it's wonderful to have great plain language forms, but as the forms get revised, you would also need to have someone on the forms committee to make sure you don't slide backwards <laughs> every time the form gets revised and you know how to build stakeholders in the community and get involved with the bar association so you can you know connect with the community and really do some education about the importance of plain language so sharing knowledge and experience 
not only with your community and your state, but making that information available with the other states, I think is really key. Claudia, can you jump in a little bit? Yeah. And you know, we're in a point of inflection in our society, right? Where we are finally in the nonprofit sector, right? Which is the most, in the legal nonprofit sector, which is the most resource constrained environment, right? Because our programs have one lawyer um, for every 10,000 people that need that. Like 28 states have that, you know? So it's one lawyer for 10,000 people that need a lawyer. And by a lawyer, I mean a free, competent, well-trained civil legal aid lawyer, right? Um, so we have a huge gap and a huge crisis. And so we are using technology, right, to leverage and to scale the knowledge of these attorneys and experts through technologies. And we'll talk a little bit later about smart apps and advancements in um, technology like artificial intelligence and stuff like that. But as we're building technology, we cannot build technology around poor forms and poor processes. And I think it's Glenn Rowden, actually, who always says, if you take technology and you wrap it around a bad process or a bad design, what you're doing is just putting a little Band-Aid when what you should be doing is really system simplification, right? And system simplification includes internalizing the fact that you're communicating as a system, as a provider, as a court, with people that are at, assume, you know, a certain level of uh, language capacity. And so if we're going to build helpful technology, and in my case, you know, my focus is on building strong, uh, safe, secure online forms that are free to the public. If, if I'm going to work with partners to help them develop a set of forms that will get them from A to C, I first have to talk with them and work with them to put the forms and as much as they can in plain language. Because sometimes the forms, right, in the legal system are done through bar committees, a form, form committees. And uh, that's what happened in the Washington Project, right? They, they basically decided that all the family forms were going to be put into plain language, which was wonderful and visionary. In 2015, we started automating those plain language forms. And so you cannot do technology until you have plain language, until you have to simplify the language and the process. And I can tell you that the result of that has been fantastic in terms of how fast and how many people are using the new online forms through Low Help Interactive in Washington State. But none of that would have happened if the forms first had not been put in plain language way back in 2011, 2013. Ten years later, the technology came in, and now the forms are available to everybody in the state of Washington State or anyone that, can, that needs to file here. And uh, out of all of this, in 2016, between 2016 and 2019, the Supreme Court of Washington is one of the courts that has issued standards by which courts purchase technology so that they don't bring technology that create unforeseen barriers to the courts. And so they release, um, in 2021, they release the new, they're called the Technical Principles of the Washington Supreme Court. And those principles, one, it's one line, <laughs> and it's beautiful, and it says, all materials and instructions will be provided in plain language. 
you know, and that's extremely powerful because if you're going to be buying technology that is going to have instructions and manuals for end users to communicate and interact with the court, then those vendors are going to have to respond to any RFP or RFI. How is your materials, how is your product in plain language? Do you, you know, or do you, are you, are you providing tools and materials and instructions to your end users in plain language? So because it is there, it's required and it will encourage vendors that are doing technology and that are providing solutions for court systems to really improve how they are explaining, you know, the instructions and all of that, which when you combine, I mean, talk about combining legalese with technology language, it's like, so that's so hard for the average person that is just has half an hour to, you know, get their mom's probate form done. You know, well, and, and less than that, just or, searching yeah. for it, just figuring yeah, out where yeah, to go exactly. in the first place. Can I add in that this is where leadership is needed. And when you big, begin to see really big changes is when the courts themselves are doing things. And so we've had our courts, they started issuing plain language abstracts of their decisions, which was great. But why weren't the decisions in plain language? You know, our judges do receive it's a plum appointment to go and take a course on plain language. And they are rewriting their rules. And even, I know that in the States, the federal rules are being rewritten. So all of these things show lawyers, they better get in gear, you know, and accept the new reality. But that's, courts taking leadership is is really important. One of the things I wanted to follow up with, with your comments, Claudia, is, you know, we get into the mandates are really starting to move things forward, I think. This demand that things be in plain language. When we get back to what's the standard? What's the style? You know, how are we choosing the words? So I could see on the vendor side some confusion. You know, this is a requirement, but whose process do I follow? And I know that there are standards being developed. And maybe, Cheryl, if you could start with a little bit uh, more on the international standard and then Maria kind of go into some of the detail about how you're seeing some of these standards and where vendors are going to find this information and try to stay consistent. Yeah. Well, we had a study by the Bar Association and the uh, Bankers Association in Canada, and they defined a new term for us, which was legal literacy, because it goes beyond just plain language and the written material, but also and how you name a, a form or a document or a process or procedure. We have very strange names for things. You know, what's discovery? So we have to look at simplification of the system, as Claudia has been saying. So internationally, there's an organization called the International Organization for Standard Standardization, <laughs> called ISO for short. The organizations I mentioned at the beginning, they've been working for five years or more on developing a standard for defining plain language, which they came up with the definition that plain language is information and design that allows a person to to find the material, to understand it, and then to use it. If it's not practical and they can't apply it to solving a task, then it's not truly plain. And they have been working on developing a standard, which will be issued by the ISO, we think, in the coming year. It's language neutral. It deals with overall or higher principle issues in in language, like knowing your reader, knowing what they can handle, what information they need, addressing all those things, considering the circumstances, 
like, will be they be in a flood when they read this or what? You know, all those things, all those higher level concerns will be in the first level standard. And then in subsequent years, each country and their own ISO in that country will produce it in different languages. So you have more guidelines that are more like what people are used to seeing in the 10 tips for plain language or something, you know, actual grammatical and word choice guidelines. So we expect that, you know, two or three years from now, but um, that will be the, the measure that's followed internationally. Maria, I know you've been studying this area in, in particular. Yes. And like Cheryl, I'm very excited about the new standard. You know, it's self-proving. You have to be able to read, understand, and use it successfully. So if you're doing your job, your materials are usable and, you know, the users are having success. So if you're not, they're not. But really, what does that mean? What kind of materials are they? So there's some training that has to be done that at minimum, you want to get the people in the legal field to at least be able to look at something, whether it's a website, a form, instructions, whatever, and say, does this look like it's in plain language or not? And in order to be able to do that, you have to know something about reading theory, design, visual accessibility, reading interest, what gets someone feeling like they can read something or can't read something, reading persistence and navigation, and then testing, which you mentioned before, to really be able to say, yes, this does work. And we have had users test it. We improved it, which is part of the user testing cycle. And we tested it again. And this is a successful plain language document, website, et cetera. If I could add, that is also in the new ISO standard that they recommend that you test things on potential users. But over 30 years, what I've seen is when there's funding for a project, there's not usually any funding for testing. And so we end up doing it casually uh, at, with the least expense, trying to you know cheat on it. But it is an expectation of plain language. We talk a lot with legal technology in particular about the importance of bringing users and end users into the process as soon as possible. Are you seeing any of that in this space where before you even start essentially translating legal documents into plain language, seeing what what users are doing or searching for? I could see you know a ton of Google tools where you're looking at most searched for terms before you label something. We talked earlier, joked about labeling everything expungement when people are looking for clear my record. I'm not sure it starts that early, you know, as in the commercial world, but in some way it does. For instance, Charlotte was mentioning, you know, neuroscience and artificial intelligence. I know that we're starting to collect corpora that reflects plain language choices. So some of the words that you refer to, we can say based on our previous experience, we know these are not good choices. And then you can keep your, you refer to glossaries and other tools that we found that in user testing, these other words are more successful. So there's a good argument for just freely and widely sharing plain language corpora and plain language glossaries so that people can access words which have undergone field testing and they can use them. But usually field testing in the courts, in our experience, it comes near the end. And, you know, it used to not come at all. <laughs> so 
<laughs> it's wonderful that it does come and it's wonderful that it does convey the user experience to people in the court system that are way distant from it because, you know, you can hear things like, doesn't everyone understand what subpoena duces tecum is? <laughs> and that brings the user's world a lot closer to the court administrator's world and things get better. We did a study once for the Law Society, the regulator here, on lawyers' retainer letters. And it, people were amazed to learn that there were lots of words there they didn't, the clients don't understand. And one was out-of-pocket expense. You know, it's you, you think that's so normal, but it's not. One of the things that brain science is doing is telling us how to structure our language and information so that it's easier to process. One of the things is choosing familiar words, not necessarily shorter, but more familiar. And there are lots and lots of online databases with the 5,000 most frequent words, the 10,000 words. And all of these steps just save, save you time by avoiding so much time after the user testing, when the people tell you, well, I don't know what that is, I don't know that word, you can shorten the time involved for user testing, but you don't eliminate it. That's a nice segue into one of my favorite new tools that I've seen from the National Center for State Courts is this uh, use this, not that tool. And I just think that's just such a neat way. And I, I didn't dig into it enough to see how much user testing they did on it. But it's just a really neat tool that they have available for anyone who wants to go and say, what what could I be doing to make this easier to understand or clearer in my writing? Uh, a lot of what I do and a lot of what Cheryl does is, uh, you know, focus on clearer writing and communicating. So, you know, this is something that's been part of my work for many years and working in legal journalism, too, you know, used to make the case that even though I worked at a legal publication, you know, lawyers should know this. These are terms of art. I'm like, well, when you have a general legal audience, it's still a general legal audience. There are terms of art that are very specific to niche practice areas, but we don't use those for every lawyer. So I, I should have asked you in advance to come up with your favorite words or words that you would banish, uh, speaking of uh, words <laughs> execute are... to execute your signature <laughs> it scares old grandmas like me you want me to come in to be executed <sighs> and i think i think a big part is as as we move from paper to bits right as we move from papers to one and zeros in technology computers with technology you have the benefit that if you build a technology to have feedback loops from your end users and you give them a help button and you actually have a backend help and support system like we have in Law Help Interactive. Example, yesterday, a couple of days ago, somebody messaged, I am getting instructions to attach a document, but I don't know how to do that, right? And so I reached out to our partner that created the interview to figure out where is the instruction and what does it actually say? Because with that feedback, if we know the context of that instruction, we could change at the system level. We can change a message for people that are sending that type of request and very quickly let them know, you know, this is referring to either electronic filing or paper filing. But on our end user system, we can put a quick can note that anytime we get that, we can get the user that instruction and then we can work with the partner to modify the message 
and make it more plain language, or we can do it on our on our own system. Sometimes if it's more of a system-wise issue, a lot of what we spend doing is um, helping people understand how to go back and open an answer file, you know, and all of that has to be done in plain language. But with end user feedback, it's like a gold mine. It's I'm always so thankful when somebody takes the time to tell me that something is not clear, whether it be interview in the interview, whether it be in what prints out, whether it be on the system, because that's goal that we can then take and try to improve the messaging out, either through the interview, through our system, through our support, and we can be in constant improvement mode. And I think that to be serious about plain language, we need to have those feedback loops. Once the product is released, whether, you know, and that's the problem with paper forms, right? Like, how are you, who's going to sit down, like, for feedback if you put email the court here or email the authoring group here? Who's going to go and do it? But once you're in the internet world, it's easy to give people a place to send feedback and let them send you anything. It could be like, thank you, this was great, you saved me so much uh, aggravation and stress. I didn't know where to go and you guys helped me out. You can have lovely feedback, but you can say, hey, I'm getting this instruction and I don't know where to, <laughs> what to do. Like, where do I click? And we can then like improve that message or work with our partners to improve the message and m make it simpler, you know, more include images, all of that. So I think as we move forward with technology, it gives us a great opportunity to be in constant improvement mode and make more things plain language, you know, the technical errors plain language, the instructions to e-file, those, I really think a lot of courts and states need to look at those because they're very convoluted, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just simplifying the underlying paper, but simplifying the messaging that we're giving people in need across a whole system. And that's really fun. I think that's where we get the gains of plain language in messaging. Do you think that that's becoming more of a, well, I would say since especially, well, even before the pandemic with the acceleration of legal technology adoption and, you know, a shift in the courts with more information being available for the public and for self-service with the public, has that accelerated these efforts? Are you seeing that the movement kind of getting more momentum and certainly from the pandemic? You know, we work with four court systems, and I got to say that our core partners are very focused on plain language. And for example, Iowa courts have a set of collections, and D.C. courts actually, too. They have forms in our system, and we, you know, we, we work with them to encourage them to put them in plain language. And what I see is that when things are in plain language and the instructions are clear and people can go... Be, you know, that before they create the document, the document, and then the what do I do with the document? Those three sets of instructions that happen in the context of a document and submitting it. When people take the time to do that, we're not getting that many requests for help because people are getting through. And so paying is just such an important thing in terms of if we're using consumer time and tax dollars why not make those tax dollars effective so that 90% of the people go through, so that 98% of the people can get through that form, that instruction, and the next steps? 
you know, and it makes such a huge difference because I know sometimes, sometimes somebody changes an interview and puts something that is not that clear and we start getting a lot of questions in the inbox, right? And sometimes it's, you know, it's just that it's, we have to be intentional about it, you know? So I think um, it makes a huge difference. And I think that's, so, you know, people that are now moving to from paper to technology, there is more awareness that plain language has to be centered and has to be factored in the project plan and the budget and the beginning and the end. And hopefully the platforms and the tools that you use will also very much value feedback and will monitor and over, you know, look at trends and they let you know, hey, this is causing a lot of questions. Can we work on improving it? You know, um, hopefully the technology platforms are providing that sort of end user support um, because that's where you get the opportunity to change something small that could affect thousands of people in a month. And what you're saying is that plain language can help you be efficient, more efficient. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And effective. The, uh, in terms of the technology, we can go even back further than when people are dealing with the courts and putting forms in. And we have some programs here that are might be called Pathfinder or Solution Finder or something like that. And what you do, people often go to the lawyer too late. The problem's gotten too big. They don't know that they have a legal problem until there's no other way to go. So some of these programs that are available widely, people can go in, identify what the real world problem is, you know, not in a legal framework, and then answer questions that tell them, well, your problem falls within this area of law, and there are these sources of information, or, you know, you can go to this family court, or to this or to that. And so it's helping people to recognize the problem and know who to talk to, which they didn't do before without going and talking to their their priest, their, their pastor, their uh, high school principal, somebody in the community they trusted. Now these programs help them focus what their problem is and figure out what to do next. Claudia, can you talk a little bit? One of the things that was interesting in some of my discussions with you over time with this, and we've known each other for a while, is that I, you know, as much as I thought it would be easy to do plain language, one of the things like Cheryl mentioned, and that it, and you mentioned too, is that you know, in order to get something into plain language, you have to have done a lot of work in advance to get that preparation done and the documents done. And it would, you actually, to me, you would have to do this in advance before you would start translating into non-English languages um, for court systems, uh, because it doesn't make sense to translate or to even attempt, and I'm sure you deal with this a lot too, uh, Maria, uh, it's it's a very difficult to translate legalese into other languages. So i uh, just curious kind of what your experience is with this and where you think we need to go in terms of adding additional native speaking languages. First of all, I would say it's not for certified translators, it's not difficult to, if you have the skills, to translate legalese into other languages, but it's a waste of money in the same way of providing legalese instructions and very legalese forms is a waste of money. If people can't use them, read them, understand them, who are they for? They're not achieving their purpose. So I think that's turned out 
to be for us that one of the biggest motivators for using plain language was there were so many states that were spending a lot of money doing, because you have to provide certified translations, right? Which means it has to be at the same level and register and visual format as the original. So they were just as ineffective <laughs> as the original English documents. So, and now the new ABA requirements require that the base document be in plain language. Not that everybody does that, but that's the ideal that before you translate, you have a plain English document, and then you move to translation. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything Maria said, and a lot of it is about being effective and efficient. And, you know, and this is the thing, I think we also need to move away from the unfunded-minded context, because the bottom line is that if you are a public entity or you're a legal aid provider receiving federal funds, you're open to everyone. You are there to work with everyone, regardless of what their language preference is. And so if you start with plain language and then you over, over, overlay really competent translation of the plain language, that is not, you know, people think, oh, this is going to be $100,000. It's not. It's not. It's not even take out a zero. You know what I mean? It's orders of magnitude less than that. And let's say, let's say that at the end you spend $5,000 taking a form, like divorce form with children. Very high volume, people coming to your court or people coming to your legal aid clinic for that. What if with online forms you can do 150000 of those a year and you spend $5,000? And the law doesn't change every two years, so you don't have to revise it every year. So that $5,000 investment leads you to 300 documents created with maybe people creating the document twice or three times, so divide by a third. So you've helped with $5,000, you've helped over 100,000 people. I think that that is return on investment, and it's making your institution be open to all, regardless of where their ancestry or where they're coming from, which is what we believe we are in this country, right? Those are our values, that, that we are all equal and we all participate and we all have the right to be able to communicate with those folks that are going to be making decisions or have the power to help us out with, with, with a final, you know, determination on things like our homes and our kids and our income and our overpayment, etc. So everybody gets really scared because they, they've never done it and they think, oh, this is going to be so much money. But at the end, once you find the right professionals and the right the right advice, you will come to realize that when you do it well and then you do your outreach well, it's incredible to start seeing these other cases from these other communities that were completely shut down. And to me, that's what's exciting about mm -hmm. this, this conversation, what courts are doing, what Supreme Courts are doing in terms of standards for the purchase of technology, what the legal nonprofits are doing, what tiny chats are doing. Is this really actually bringing a reality that we think we live in, live for everybody else, that is not in the system or served or catered to by the system because the system doesn't communicate in their language. And so there's a lot of hope, but more than anything, it's just 
dollars and cents common sense. It makes so much, it's effective, it's efficient, and you reach more of the people that you're supposed to be reaching, and they're feeling more empowered, they're feeling more respectful, they feel seen. It's just really creates trust and creates what it is, a civil society. Molly, can I add something? Well, when we think about law and legal writing and legal language, we think about written, but it's not always written. So, for example, here we we have a court system where interpreters have to come in. And I worked on a multilingual language dictionary where we translated legal terminology into seven languages. And it had to be in plain language first and then in the other languages. And the problem you don't realize is that the same word in an English country might refer to a completely different process in a Latin country or somewhere else. So we have court interpreters who need something to refer to, who are not certified, you know, translators, who don't have legal background, just a vague introduction. And they have to be able to translate into a plain language in their own language, which is the best way to reach people if you want them to understand. All right. So we've had such a great discussion. And I am wanting to close with a question from the perspective of anyone who wants to start changing the way their processes or their documents are working. What would you recommend someone do to get started? Uh, I would say if you're in the U.S., go to plainlanguage.gov. Plainlanguage.gov is the government uh, resource center on plain language. Otherwise, buy a book about plain language. Read it. I would echo that. I think that the Plain Language Center has a lot of information about how to get started in terms of culture and also resources. And my hope would be that it would eventually we'll see vendors that start to get more organized and it would be easier to access their portfolios and accomplishments and work products in, in an easier way than it is now. And that might start maybe with, you know, plain language purchasers coming together to form a community. Claudia? You know this, I would recommend that people check out a style guide because I think that a lot of folks don't know how a style guide can be such a blessing. And so the Maryland courts published a plain language style guide many years ago. And, you know, just ask yourself, should we have a style guide? And then do we bring a professional? Check out the resources Maria and Cheryl are sharing. And then bring somebody to help you create a style guide. Because once you create a style guide, that would make everything a lot easier and a lot cheaper and a lot faster. And instead of spending you know, 30 minutes in a room debating, do we use tribunal or do we use court? And it just really depends on who you're serving in, you know, and cultures of concept and stuff. It's in the style guide. In this institution or in this software or in this court, we use this term. And the issue is resolved. Everything else will be consistent coming forward. So I think people should check out style guides, collect style guides, and start working on their own style guide. Um, because that's going to make the work of actually going through the process of creating things in plain language and creating things that are accessible. What images do we use? You know, what are our icons? Do the icons work? Test everything. And then if it worked and you get good feedback and people are getting through, then put those in your style guide. Uh, But really just check out the style guides and, you know, you'll see that it's not that hard to have a style guide. And once you have the style guide, 
everything will be standard and there will be less discussion and it will be more like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it's very practical. And I like things to be practical. <laughs> That's great advice. And I, uh, I appreciate it. And thank you all so much. It's been wonderful having you here. Yeah, definitely check out the style guide. I, I 100% agree with that and customize it to your own organization as you're reviewing this. And then um, at some point in the future, we'll all talk about the Oxford comma. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to slip that in. Thank you, Claudia, Cheryl, and Maria for joining us today. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed another episode of Talk Justice. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to rate us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Until next time. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.